Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can follow me on Twitter at Exporter Tax. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, I'm excited to have Chairman Dave Camp. Chairman Camp is a senior policy advisor in PwC's Washington National Tax Services practice. Before joining PwC, Chairman Camp served for over 24 years as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, representing the 4th Congressional District of Michigan. From 2011 to 2015, he served as chairman for the House Ways and Means Committee. Chairman Camp, it is a great honor to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Well, Doug, it's, I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. So in doing some research, Chairman Camp, uh, before this podcast started, I was looking for some of the, your latest insights on social media. And I've noticed that you have what I would call a relatively scant presence on social media, including no Twitter account. This Twitter, as you know, has turned into one of the primary policy mediums of our recent time. So I got to ask the question, why no Twitter for you and any comments just in general on how social media has shaped U.S. politics, particularly over the last four or five years? Well, Doug, I got caught. Um, I think part of that is my background. You know, when I got involved in politics and public service, uh, it, 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 it was and still is in many ways a face-to-face -face business. But obviously, technology can be a great tool. Um, I, I did use social media when I was in office a bit. I didn't do it personally. My staff did it. We always did it in the third person. I never pretended that someone was writing for me. Uh, but I, I guess I, I just... Uh, really prefer kind of direct contact, direct emails, calls, uh, video chats. Now um, it's a little harder to do face-to-face -face work uh, in, in, in the COVID era, but you're right. This has really changed the political landscape. And uh, certainly Donald Trump was the first presidential candidate to use social media and has used it extensively. Some might say too much in his time in office, but it can be I think for an office holder, um, it's uh, essential because it is one way to communicate your message. And um, you know that, that in these races, you, there's one side and another side, that the other side is going to be using it. So if you leave that off the field uh, as a candidate, it, you're going to be less competitive. But I think there's other ways to communicate. And I've always felt... Um, when I first ran for office, everyone thought TV is everything. And I, I always thought it was a supplement to the other things you're doing. So I look at um, social media as one tool in the toolbox. Some people use it more than others, uh, but I don't think it's the be all and end all necessarily, but it's certainly an important part of, of communicating as a policymaker and as an elected official or as someone running for office. Yeah. As a, a a, a way to just be able to have that direct contact with your constituency is just fundamentally different than than anything we've ever seen. And certainly President Trump has used that more than than anybody. But it really is interesting to me to see as, as a way that, you know, instead of going through what would be considered the traditional media to to contact those constituencies or, or doing the town halls, it really is a, a, an amazing way to be able to to reach so many individuals. 
So, uh, well, right. I'll, I'll keep an eye out for you, Chairman Camp, so right. that I, I'll, I promise to be your first follower on Twitter if and when you ever decide to, to plunge in. I obviously so, need to up my game. You, you, that is a relatively low bar you've set for yourself at this point, Chairman Camp. So I, I look forward to that. All right, so so let's move on to to tax policy, and I, I have referred to you in private circles as the Godfather of guilty, and this goes back to when you started the with the House Ways and Means Committee in 2011. So, in in doing some research. I, I found a quote from Congressman Richard Neal, and this was back in November of 2011, so shortly after you put forth your proposal, which really seemed radical at the time, this concept of this low tax, this new category of subpart F income, which would effectively you had proposed moving to a territorial system of tax away from our worldwide tax system, but to the extent that income was subject to a relatively low amount of tax, and I believe it was 15% was what was originally thrown out there, then that income would become immediately subject to U.S. tax. And then you had also even mentioned the deduction for, for that type of, of income. And Richard Neal said at, at, I believe, the first committee hearing on this um, was that he had mentioned that a Chinese philosopher once said, quote, a journey of a thousand steps begins with a single step. And that was in November 17th, 2011. And it is amazing to me how many steps have been taken now. So nine years later, this proposal that you put out there, it's the law of the land here in the US. We have mm -hmm. a mountain of regulations where we have spent a lot of time here on the cross-border tax talks, dissecting, acknowledging what a difficult endeavor Treasury had, as well as Congress and putting together the architecture of these rules and then with Treasury fine-tuning them. What we've seen now globally with BEPS 2.0 is that now this minimum tax is a potential, not just a, the law of the land in the US, but potentially globally. And wanted to get your thoughts and your perspectives from, from nine, 10 years ago when this was yeah. originally thrown out publicly, and I'm sure you were talking about it before then. What are your thoughts on, on where this has come today and, and where this might be going from a global perspective? Well, I should sort of dust off uh, those issues from a while ago. Uh, one of the things that was driving the debate on international tax in the Congress was the fact that there was a feeling the United States was out of step with the rest of the world, and particularly our worldwide system of taxation, which you mentioned. And so part of the debate and, and the discussion and surrounding that was, how do, we, how do we become more like the rest of the world? And obviously that in, involved moving toward a territorial system in terms of the discussion, but also this sense after 08 and 09, um, there was a, a considerable loss of revenue. So we felt we needed to make the United States more competitive as a place to invest and grow the economy and create jobs and help families. Um, but also this sense that there really had been um, because of the disadvantages the U.S. placed on, on businesses, that there was an incentive to um, operate in other parts of the world. So the, attempt, the attempts were, how do you find a way uh, to make the U.S. Uh, a competitive place, and not only competitive, a welcoming place? And particularly what was troubling uh, to many members is the loss of U.S. headquarters. And not that... Um, 
all jobs necessarily moved overseas, but the worry that then future investment and future growth and future jobs would be um, in other places in the world rather than in the U.S. I, I in my congressional district, I had a large company, uh, 3,000 jobs leave one of my commu smaller communities. It was a big blow. And, and the concern there was a few years before um, the headquarters moved to from there to Atlanta and then from Atlanta to another country. And, and so um, the thought was those jobs are generally some of the best jobs in communities. And whenever you're trying to make the fabric of a community stronger, you look to those employees to contribute to the hospital board or to contribute to United Way or help help really strengthen communities. So there was a real concern, I think, among policymakers about the direction things were going. Uh, this was one way, and as you know, this is a very complex area, and um, the TCAJ didn't exactly follow the directions that I was trying to go, but uh, they did move in, in this direction. And I think you're it's a tough area to refine without other issues also being on the table. I think it's very tough to just do international fixes and changes alone. That's why the regular regulatory process has been so important uh, in this. But that that's really the background behind that and um, how we, I think, ended up where we are today. Yeah, so any perspective at this point, and obviously still relatively early from, from the, the TCJA, I think that maybe a, a couple of observations as more of a practitioner and less as a policy person is that, you know, I, I think behavior has changed. I think it's a combination of changes to the U.S. system, I think, including the reduction of the of the corporate tax rate. I think um, some of the, the regulatory changes, specifically with respect to 7874, the anti-inversion rules, I think that curbed a lot of the activity that we saw with some of those potential changes to, to US to US headquarters. But I also think that the the corporate rate, you know, which was lowered as part of the TCAJ, the TCJA also really impacted that. I also think more from a maybe micro level that just the day-to-day the -day decisions that VPs of tax and tax directors have to make with respect to tax structuring. So whether it's a deal, where do you put your assets? Do you put those intangibles in the US? Do you put the intangibles uh, offshore? How do you manage that? The, the Obviously, the guilty changes the math on that, as well as a lot of the laws outside the US that have changed. So BEPS 1.0 and then as a result of BEPS 2.0. So I think even in my, what I would like to think relatively short career over 20 years practicing, it's been amazing to me how much stuff has changed even over the last 10, 10 or five years that fundamentally change how businesses make decisions with respect to assets, deal structuring, investments, top co's, et, et cetera. But do you have any reflections at this point now that at least a couple of these concepts, which I appreciate are are really borrowed from your proposals and not fully consistent with what you had proposed eight years ago? Any reflections on how that's operating? Well, I think particularly the one unifying issue in all of tax reform, when I was involved in it and uh, during the time this TCJA was being debated, the corporate rate was the one unifying issue that kept everyone together. And once you get off that, obviously different sectors, different businesses have uh, different views on almost everything else. But getting the corporate rate to 21 exceeded where I thought it could go. And uh, 
Obviously, though, uh, with you know one point five trillion in budget room, it, it gave them the flexibility to to do that, and I think it was an important uh, statement uh, to make, and and really I applaud the fact that they were able to get uh, to twenty one, and I think that that has had a big part of it. Um, you know, I just don't think we're done with this area. Uh, the regulatory process is a part of it, but there will continue to need to be refinements. Um, you know, policymakers aren't all international tax experts, and certainly the international tax practitioners uh, who deal with this every day um, can can really delve deeply and and in a more nuanced way. And ultimately, when you're in the legislative process, you do have to get votes, and so um, it can't always be perfect. But I do think. Uh, this is an improvement that we've become more competitive as a country, all in all, and that it was important to recognize that um, there were um, actions that caused companies to um, invest, not just because markets were there, but invest simply for tax reasons in other places. And this is, I think, one way to try to address it. And um, so yes, does it need more work? Is it perfect? No, but I, I think, and, and it has created a lot of complexity and a lot of work. There's no question about that. We have certainly spent a lot of time on the cross-border tax talks, right. uh, dealing with those complexities and, and the regulations. And it is just such a challenging area. It is amazing to me that that people who don't do this for a full-time living like yourself are were able to be so conversant because you're right, it is just so layered in, in complexity that it, it does baffle my mind how members and, and even their teams have to deal with this amongst all of the other complexities. And I, I do also have to remind myself, Chairman Camp, that the corporate tax base or the revenues from the corporate are just a tiny fraction of overall. And with respect to, it's the world that we live in, that I live in, but um, with respect to overall GDP and the amount of money that the, the the country brings in, it's mostly driven by individual tax and not corporate tax. Yeah, the individual tax, payroll tax, income tax. You you want those high paying, quality jobs. Uh, some of them corporate level jobs. Uh, you want those in the U.S. and you want that company platform to be able to do business around the world. So that's it's a good transition. Then let's. Um, I, I've heard that there is an election right around the corner, and wanted to spend a few minutes with you talking about the the Biden proposals and really understanding. He's he's actually put out a platform with some some relatively detailed proposals for how his administration would potentially change our international taxation of, of corporations, as well as some individuals and capital gains and a series of, of various proposals. Um, then wanted to spend a little bit talking about that the Republican proposals are, are arguably the lack thereof and what we might see if there is a Republican administration. But let's start with, with Biden. And can you provide the listeners uh, an overview of the some of the proposed changes, really focusing on the corporate aspects of the, the, the Biden proposals? Yeah, I think probably the most significant is increasing the corporate rate to 28%. That is probably the most significant uh, proposal that he has in terms of revenue. Um, Probably the other unusual one, I think he really borrowed it from Elizabeth Warren, is the 15% uh, tax on book income for large companies, those with profits of over 100 million. 
that will actually introduce a, a, a significant level of complexity. It's almost like bringing back the corporate AMT, which the TCJA eliminated, um, because it really will require a, a dual calculation. And uh, as we know, a book income is a, is a larger uh, base than uh, taxable income. So that, that is a significant proposal. And um, I guess uh, some of the other uh, items include sort of eliminating tax preferences for certain industries, particularly um, energy and real estate. Um, also, um, the guilty provisions that we talked about, he doubles uh, the, uh, the guilty uh, tax as well. And, and so I think those are all things that are significant to look at. One that is not necessarily viewed directly as a business tax would be the uh, increase in capital gains taxes to um, the highest uh, individual rate. So 39.6 plus the 3.8 um, net investment income tax uh, of 3.8%. So uh, that you know certainly puts capital gains taxes in the low 40s and, and that would make us the highest investment tax country in the world. We're already um, sixth in terms of OECD capital gains taxes at 20% for long-term capital gains. And the reason I think this is important to look at is all of these provisions go to the competitiveness of US companies around the world. And we really do have to look not just what these mean for the bottom line, and I realize all of his tax, but the Biden tax proposals raise between 3.5 and 4 trillion, depending on which analysis you look at. Um, and that's primarily for, for new spending in, in healthcare and climate change, not in debt or deficit reduction. But all of those proposals really impact how the U.S. is viewed as a place of investment. And I think investment directly affects business and directly affects jobs and directly affects employment and all, all of those items. So I think it's important to know that the really significant increase in capital gains. Now, there's a question of uh, how does this election play out? First of all, does Joe Biden win? Second of all, does he bring a Democrat Senate with him? I think it's generally thought that the House will stay Democrat under almost any scenario. But uh, will he will he have then a large majority in the Senate or will it be a narrow majority? And will some of those senators be centrist Democrats and therefore Will he be able to get all of these items uh, that uh, he's proposing? But I do think it's important to know they're out there, they're on the table, they're in his uh, plan of things to do if he's elected president, and uh, it's it's important to know what they are. But those are kind of the top of line business changes. There's also um, you know a pairing back of uh, pass through taxation. The twenty percent uh, will be phased out for incomes. Oh, 20% deduction for incomes over $400,000. So you really do see in his proposals, uh, higher taxes on higher incomes, taxes on investment, um, and uh, taxes on, on payroll as well at certain income levels, uh, as well as uh, some of these other business provisions that um, may make us out of step with the rest of the world. And that's the concern I have with, with some of those, so those ideas.
One of the things, Chairman Camp, that I think will be particularly relevant for the listeners of the cross-border tax talks, as you mentioned, is the 28% corporate rate and then the proposal for the 21% rate on guilty. One of the things that the uh, the Biden proposal was silent on was, well, what about foreign-derived intangible income? So the, the carrot for your stick. Um, which is a, a great saying that I think you put out there into the tax vernacular right. almost ten almost ten years ago, right. and so it 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 brings this fascinating question: Well, would they keep FDII, so a foreign derived intangible income, still at ten and a half? Move the guilty rate up at at twenty one percent, so there was not that continued parity, and then um, and and so do you have any thoughts on that, or was that? an intentional something that was was left out or or knowingly and from a policy perspective or is this just one of these hey they the the proposed administration gives their high level proposals and this just wasn't something that that had been mentioned but there's been a lot of speculation on well if they move the guilty rate up to 21 does FDII need to follow as well yeah i don't really know the answer to that but i will say that uh, uh, you know campaigns tend to not be as specific. And, and frankly, in 16, uh, Donald Trump as a candidate had a more specific tax plan than most candidates do. So uh, the fact that not all the details are in his ideas, in Joe Biden's ideas, isn't necessarily surprising to me, but I don't know if this was an intentional or uh, they don't plan to do anything. I, I just don't know uh, on that. But it, it is, there's a lot, of, he has a lot of specificity on a lot of things, um, but that one, uh, it's just an open question. Yeah, I like to remind people, Chairman Camp, that Trump's original proposal was a 15% worldwide rate. So in other words, a full 15% tax on corporations for their global income. And I remember many of us thought that that was just so crazy to, to even contemplate a full worldwide system, but that would have been obviously a relatively low rate by OECD standards. And what we ended up with was a 21% rate for corporations and then effectively a 10.5% on non-US tax, which you average those two, it's about 15%. So it was really kind of surprising. And that's obviously one way to look at it, but it was surprising to me rel how relatively close what we ended up with the original Trump proposal with what, you, with what got enacted, you could argue was, was fairly consistent. Um, what are the other questions that I have for you with respect to potential tax reform. So I waited, Chairman Camp, my entire career for one corp one major change in, in corporate tax law. I graduated law school in 99, so I, I finally got my change. I'm now wondering, are, are we going to see change again with this potential Biden proposal and how drastic will it be relative to the existing proposal? But I think as, as I've studied this, we, we've seen as tax reform is usually, it's not typically the first year, and I think this even goes back to well before me during the, the Reagan administration, that it was usually a second or a, a third year in office where major tax changes could happen. We are certainly in unprecedented times with COVID, with the largest budget deficits that we've ever seen, and you know, still potential more stimulus coming and additional deficits. Do, do you think that you know, if Biden were to get elected, that 
corporate tax reform or these changes could occur sooner rather than later? Is this something that could occur earlier in the administration, even potentially the first year as a means to to either raise revenue for particular objectives that they have or to try to cure deficits? Could, could this happen faster than it's maybe happened in the past? Well, I'm not sure because uh, I mentioned it would really depend on the makeup. First of all, they'd have to uh, win the Senate, but then it would really, really depend on the makeup. And will they win that Senate majority if they do with more moderate Democrats? Um, but also, I think the economy is going to play a big role in this. If the economy has not recovered to a point, will they really be able to sustain this level of increased taxes and revenue going to the federal government out of the private sector? I just I think that's going to be something that's going to be important. And then lastly, uh, sort of reading and listening and watching the tea leaves and talking to people, it does seem as though they may be leaning toward, uh, and, the, and listening to Joe Biden's comments himself, a, an infrastructure or a stimulus package as the first thing out of the box. So yes, while these proposals are out there, it's still unclear what priority these tax proposals may have uh, in a Biden administration. And at least right now, it looks as though it may not be the first thing they try to do out of the block, but something with regard to infrastructure or stimulus might be the, the first thing. But again, in many ways, uh, the campaigns are just getting underway. Um, there's still a lot of campaign time left and we'll see um, how the issues uh, sort of evolve going forward. But that would be my guess. And then lastly, will it take 60 votes to enact some of these things or will it be a simple majority? And that depends. Are they able to move some of these items through what we call the reconciliation process? And or are they going to address the, the legislative filibuster in some way? And um, those are items that could come later uh, if, in fact, they decide to do tax reform at a later time or these tax proposals at a later time. But there are so many of them, it is almost like a tax reform to, uh, you might call it 2.0 or 3.0, um, because uh, they're, they're pretty extensive. Yeah, I, I've lost count at this point. I'm not sure if it is 2.0 or or 3.0, given the various right. iterations. So let's let's talk a little bit about the the Republican proposals, or, or arguably the lack thereof. So every four years since 1856, so in my math, that's 164 years. There's been a, a formal Republican platform until this year. Now, a lot has changed between just the, the current administration and COVID-19. Um, I guess my first question, is, is this a big deal or not that the Republicans actually had a have a platform? I mean, do these things even really get followed? I, I, we all, all the policy nerds, you know, I run through there looking for the corporate business law changes and, you know, who knows what happens to these. They're fascinating to read. But first question, is this, is this a big deal or not? And then secondly, what, what do you think that if this administration were to get reelected, what will its goals be? And, and what do you see the, the tax landscape looking like if there is a, a Republican administration and presuming that the Democrats would still control the House? Well, Doug, I think over the years, the platforms have become less important, important as a public document. They tend to be something that uh, activists fight very hard for uh, issues behind the scenes, and policy certainly does matter. Uh, but in terms of uh, the platform's effect on the presidential campaign, that effect has diminished significantly over the years. 
And the fact that there is no platform at all, I don't think really matters a whole lot. Uh, those would be written and promptly ignored and put on a shelf and gather dust. And, and I mean, can any of us really, maybe, maybe you can, but most Americans aren't going to go search out the, the, the party platforms because what happens is once the nominee is a nominee, the platform really becomes whatever the nominee's position is anyway. And, uh, so I think they've become much less important. In terms of tax policy, um, certainly right now the administration's been focused on this deferral of social security taxes. Um, and one of the items could be, how is that deferral dealt with? Is it forgiven? Is it, is it a transfer from the general fund to, to pay for the shortfall and social security taxes that are collected? Um, you know, that doesn't seem to be have a, a huge take up right now, but that's certainly been one of the president's uh, key priorities. Over the time, he's talked about a number of things, uh, even lowering the corporate rate, statutory rate to 15, as, as we talked a bit about before. He's talked about a middle class tax cut. Um, not a lot of meat on the bones on those proposals, but at least uh, they've been things uh, that the president's talked about. He's also talked a bit about indexing capital gains, but there seems to be a consensus, at least in the Treasury Department, that that would require uh, congressional action in order to do that. Uh, he's mentioned, uh, floated the idea of lowering capital gains rate. I think we'll see over time what the, the president as a candidate lands on uh, for uh, the second administration. But I do think it's important to let the voters know what you're going to do if you want to be reelected. And um, I think both conventions sort of made the mistake of uh, saying how bad the other one was um, to some extent. And I, I, I do think that one of the things that needs to happen is some articulation of what you would do as an incumbent if you're going to get reelected. And I always felt that obligation to say, why should people send me back to Congress and what are the things I'm going to work on if I go back there? So I'm, I'm hoping we'll see more detail, but there have been a number of ideas uh, kind of thrown out there. It's just um, not clear which one has the top is at the top of the list right now. Well, as we get more detail, we'll certainly talk about it here on Cross-Border Tax Talks. Maybe I'd like to leave this with, with with a question for you. This is something that I've had a lot of discussions and debates with, particularly our non-U.S. colleagues, and comparing our two-party democratic system with parliamentary systems, per particularly in Europe, but, but we see it elsewhere throughout the world. And you know, maybe it's, you know, I'm an outside the beltway kind of guy from, from, from the Midwest and have certainly learned a lot in my, my time in Washington, working with you and many talented others on our, on our policy teams. But, you know, one of the fundamental views that, that I had was the difference between our, our two party system and, and Republicans and Democrats versus a parliamentary system where generally a, a government would need to seek coalition with, with other, with other smaller groups to be able to put together a coalition to actually form a government and, and dictate policy. And I always kind of viewed our system being different than that. We had the Republicans and the Democrats. And what I've seen really since, and, and maybe some of this is just my naivety, 
that the the Trump administration and the, and the Republicans have really seemed to develop their own coalition, which is fundamentally fundamentally different than at least the Republican Party that maybe I was more familiar with in you know in the eighties and 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 even nineties or even more recently. Do you see any merit in in that comparison? And is that really a change in fundamentally how we operate it is? Or am I just looking at, frankly, too small of a sample size and that, you know, parties have really continued to evolve over time and this is just part of the way our, our system operates? Oh, well, parties do evolve over time and they do incorporate various movements that spring up uh, that are somewhat ideologically aligned with them. And, and that does happen over time. And I remember uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, the, 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 I mean, actually before 80, in the 70s, when 76, when uh, Ronald Reagan was running for, for president, uh, you know, the Reaganites were not considered part of the Republican Party. And clearly in the 80s, they, they, they became the Republican Party. So um, these, these things do change. I do think that we still are fundamentally different uh, than many European systems and that our branches of government, our executive and our legislative are uh, co-equal branches of government and our courts. And um, in a parliamentary system, that isn't exactly true. Now, I realize the executive has um, over the years really uh, gained much more authority and power. Some of that delegated by Congress and some of that because Congress hasn't exercised the kind of oversight they need to. Um, in a bipartisan way. Um, but I, I, you know, I, these things do change and evolve, but it, it does appear at least as, and I've seen this in the, over the last 20 years, uh, the party who has the white house, their members tend to be voting with their, the president of their party and less of this, um, really being, uh, sort of, freelancing and, and addressing issues as they come up, but more having a party position on, on more issues than uh, there used to be in the past. So that, that has been a change, um, I think a pretty significant change. And, and the country has become more polarized over the years. So there's, it's, it's really harder for a, a legislative process, which is based on compromise, to compromise with um, such a polar in such a polarized environment and in the past that that was really how how you got things done is it it really i mean if you're trying to have an agreement with someone it's very hard to have it all one way and and it's been much harder for legislators to to be able to to compromise because the issues are much more and that's i mean obviously financing has changed how you fund campaigns has become much more polarized media has become much more polarized um and, and so the electorate is much more polarized. So that does impact our system uh, significantly and, and make it harder to do. But um, you know, things do evolve. And, and, um, and I will say that I know some people say, oh, in years past, it was such a bygone era. I mean, if you read history, we've had some pretty polarized times in, in our country. And, and I do think it's still the best system, although imperfect. Um, we at least um, try to have a system where, where people have a say. They may not always get their way, but they have a say uh, in, in what happens in our representative democracy. So um, it's always exciting. Uh, presidential elections, you know, are, are for all the marbles. It's really the Super Bowl of politics uh, when you have a presidential election. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch this one uh, play out as well. 
Well, I, I certainly agree and, and hope that the pendulum towards civility and compromise will, will move back, um, believe in, in the good of people, and, and do hope that civility and compromise will, will reign at some point. So why don't we leave it with that? Chairman Camp, thank you very much. It's been an absolute honor to have you on Cross-Border Tax Talks. Uh, thanks a lot, Doug. Great to talk with you. Look forward to doing it again sometime. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. A special thanks to Chairman Dave Camp, Senior Policy Leader in PwC's Washington National Tax Services Practice. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks.